Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that affects your agency and organization. Today, we have Brian Knapp, renowned software developer. This is part two of my interview with Brian Knapp. Well, I came across this research paper that looked at the MVC framework, and you know, obviously Apache Stress is, is based off MVC, and they were talking about <laughs> the code smells in MVC and how these code smells are more likely to create vulnerabilities in software. So how important is it in terms of selecting components or frameworks as part of software engineering upfront? How, how important is choosing the right uh, frameworks and libraries as part of software design and software engineering? I think it's critically important, um, but I also think that it's not given much importance by most uh, developers or teams, uh, specifically because people tend to underestimate how long software is going to live. For example, I, years ago at a previous job, worked on a system and I'm pretty sure three, four, five years later, however long it's been, um, it's largely unchanged and still working incredibly well. Um, but I would not doubt if there are tons of parts of that that might be out of date or so forth. And so the lifetime of software uh, versus the lifetime of how long you work on that software, you know, software is likely going to outlive us. You know, there's probably software that I write now or that I will be writing in the near future or maybe I've already written uh, that could be used like 50 years from now. And I could be dead. And that's really strange if you think about it and, you know, realize like, really, they're not going to change. Like, no, there's there's in any system, there always exists some part that no one wants to touch um, because it's complicated or weird or uses some out of date component or whatever. And every system I've ever worked on has some version of that. Um, and I'm sure the other software developers listening to this are probably nodding their head going, yeah, in ours, it's this or that. And so those components last so darn long and getting like getting people to wrap their brains around that and then try and make really good decisions about that is it's i mean it's a really hard problem you know and it's not a technical problem it's a people problem and really all the stuff we're talking about you know we have the technical ability to solve this but as people working with other people like that's where you know i find most of the trouble in software architecture comes from is the people it's almost like we we're exchanging a lot of bad ideas and or ideas that haven't been been vetted fully, and it goes into the ecosystem and it takes a life on its own. There's a lot of, for lack of a better term, groupthink that happens, um, and there's a lot of really tribal behavior. And I don't say that in a negative way. I'm just saying people tend to follow other people's lead, and that's usually a good thing. But sometimes the people that they're following are following other people who are following other people who are like leading everyone else unintentionally into a ravine. And then everyone else goes, shoot, how do we get here? You know, you know, well, I'll ask him. Well, you know, like 10 people down, you know, telephone game or whatever. Um, you go, well, that's why we, you know, I needed to go here just to get a better cell phone signal. I don't know why everyone else is following me here. You know, it's, it's those kind of weird scenarios that, we're all kind of acting out. But if we are forced to build software faster with the whole DevOps phenomena and developers and, and architects are not really putting a lot of creativity into the software engineering process, what what role or what impact do you see that having 
you know, in terms of the speed and trying to get things to market fast, what role do you see that having on overall software quality and software security? Well, Kevin, it's a wonderful question. I really think everyone does their very level best to move as fast as they can, generally speaking. And I, it reminds me of like watching uh, a young kid who is just, you know, able to walk and run a little bit, but sometimes their body or their outrun their feet or their feet outrun their body, you know, where they're like kind of moving one part faster than they're moving the other and then they kind of fall on their face. Right. I think that in the world of software with DevOps and all of this, um, we're moving, like we've put in such a big priority on speed to market, you know, like speed to markets, like this false God that everyone's chasing because they think that that'll like solve all their problems. And most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't hurt in the short term, but it hurts so big in the long term. Um, and in my experience, you really, you know, I've worked in organizations where I talked to someone who basically said, yeah, you know, our company has this big problem, but uh, until things go catastrophically wrong, they're not, they're not going to care. They have no reason to care, right? And so things like performance very, very, very often are terrible for years before the system crashes. And most of the people at these companies that have major power, you know, performance outages and downtime, they know. You know, they're not like surprised on the inside going, oh, my gosh, no one could have seen this coming is usually especially the more senior engineers are like, yeah, we knew it was coming, but they, uh, they don't fingers. necessarily have anything they can do about it because they're being told to move faster and ship more things, you know, back to the software gravity thing. And they cross new things. So, hopefully nothing happens. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's I mean, it's it's like uh, it's like passing a stick a dynamite around or an M80 with a lit fuse, just hoping that, you know, you pass it off to someone else before it goes bad, you know, and like security, like when it blows up though, it's so bad, right? You know, you have these companies that have like huge data breaches, you know, and that are going to have to pay out millions of dollars in these huge lawsuits. And you go, you know, it's probably fixable. Didn't need to happen. But again, those people, they're prioritizing speed they're prioritizing features, they're prioritizing everything but security, everything but performance, everything but architecture and code quality. And most of the time it doesn't hurt them enough for them to freak out. The upshot, I guess, uh, for you and I is every once in a while, stuff blows up so bad that then a culture shift happens because the people who were there when it blew up so bad go, yeah, I was here the last time that things went down and we lost these multi-million dollar customers and such and such got fired. And yeah, now we have to care about this. I think it's about cost savings. I think if you can show an organization that you are able to save them money in terms of software maintenance or the cost to maintain software over a long period of time, I don't think security vulnerabilities or security is the right conversation to get people to pay attention. I think at the end of the day, it's about money and cost savings to get people to pay attention. I could save you two, three, four million dollars over the next two or three years. I think you get people's attention. I think you're right. I think the cost savings does make uh, the conversation go quite a bit different and quite a bit better. And I also think that in some cases, it can still depend on whether or not those people have felt the pain yet. 
You know, it's like uh, selling car insurance would be really tough if no one ever knew of anyone in a bad accident. It would still work, but it would be hard. And I think that the more cost, like the more the conversation is about cost savings, uh, the better they go. Um, also, I think a lot of programmers and security people I work with aren't necessarily wise enough to even steer it to quite that point. And so a lot of times it's like, well, there's all these technical problems and patches and things that we need to fix. And, and you know, the people making the monetary decisions go, okay, and, you know, but once you make it about dollars and value, then they go, okay, so it's costing us this. And if we pay that, it'll save us that. Like, okay, you know, they get that. Um, but you got to speak their language for sure. Yeah. And then some folks just have an enormous appetite for technical debt and, you know, they eventually think they can pay it down. But as you know, I mean, technical debt can be so enormous at times you can't pay it down. And typically what happens as you've seen with things potentially like or Equifax, you know, a breach occurs. And uh, I think we have to do a better job at, at, you know, reducing the amount or reducing the accumulation of technical debt as it relates to not only software development, but software engineering, because, you know, you got to have a really, really sound design and you got to have good developers who can implement the design correctly in code. Uh, so I think they kind of work hand in hand to a certain extent. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. The only concern I have when it comes to technical debt is what you just said, that some people have an enormous appetite for technical debt. Just like how in real life, a lot of people have an enormous appetite for real debt. And so to some extent, that debt metaphor is a little bit scary because you go, you know, there's some people that will leverage themselves to 510x beyond what they even have. You know, I mean, that's how the financial crisis ended up happening in 2008, right? Is people got over too much debt and too much leverage. And when the calls came, they didn't have the money and they went, oh, well. I don't have money and kind of domino effect. And so there is that risk. I mean, a very real risk where, you know, the technical debt that people are willing to take on uh, at some point could be higher than what they can actually afford. And unfortunately, the people who often take on the technical debt don't know how much they're taking on and they have no great way of measuring it. Like the measurements around, Actual technical debt and actual costs are so weak most of the time, or more accurately, non-existent most of the time in most organizations that, you know, there's not a real good discussion usually in my experience, maybe elsewhere they have these wonderful discussions around technical debt, but I kind of imagine they don't, you know, there's not necessarily that discussion when you're building a feature or adding a thing like, okay, this is going to cost us. $50,000 to maintain over the next five years. Is that cool? Like that, you know, that's not even necessarily happening. And I don't even know if a lot of programmers and engineers or product people even know when they're making those decisions. You know, a lot of times the debt sneaks up on you and you go, our decision just cost us that. And you're like, yeah, our decision just is that. It's almost like oh. a lie. It's almost like a lie. You have to tell one lie to cover up the other lie. And once you start taking shortcuts, you got to constantly take shortcuts to cover up for bad design, poor coding, whatever the case may be, just to deliver a software on time. So it seems like it's a recurring problem that is so systemic, but also it models and it, it reflects current, current life situations where we live in terms of the complexity and just the appetite for bigger and better. And, you know, as you mentioned, 
the great uh, analogy you gave about taking on debt in our personal life, it's kind of the same thing, which is very, very interesting. Hey, Brian, before I let you go, I have one last question for you. What will software development look like in the next five to 10 years? Well, Kevin, uh, I hope my answer doesn't disappoint you, but I think that it's going to look a lot similar to what uh, it's looked like for the last five or 10 years, uh, which is to say very similar to how much it looked you know, like decades ago. A lot of what we do as software people is slightly prettier and slightly more complicated versions of the same software that's existed for a very long time. And yes, I know there's things like machine learning and 3D and VR and all that stuff, Bitcoin, all that. Like I get it. But fundamentally, you know, most of us are still using email clients. They might be in a web browser, but that's not so different than email coming out of your terminal. Uh, we're still using word processors. We're still using spreadsheets. You know, we're still using chat. You know, we're still sharing pictures and all that. So uh, fundamentally, I think a lot of what software builders do and a lot of how they do things is going to stay very similar, maybe approximately the same, um, which is good in a lot of ways because uh, if you're paying attention, you can, you know, build skill sets and manage your career in intelligent ways. Um, but then also that means that in 10 years or whatever, uh, we could have this podcast episode again and a lot of the same issues um, or issues that look an awful lot the same will still be here. And that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, because I think in the long run, um, software development is a net benefit to the world. So it's not even, you know, like uh, my friend often says, you know, these are good problems to have. Like if you're successful and yeah, you know, there's this big problem, but, you know, you're impacting all these lives, the net effect is still good. And, you know, my personal belief is that the net effect of the work that I do and my coworkers do and that you're doing um, is ultimately a benefit to the world. And so we should keep doing it. Um, and the point that I believe that that's not the case, like, I'll stop. And I hope other people will too. So that's my view on the next 10 years or so of software development. Hey, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I look forward in some of the things you're doing and much, much success to you, uh, whatever you do in your, in your next endeavors. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, this has been an awesome talk. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, man. All right. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. I want to thank our guest today, Brian Knapp. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.